Thank you very much for leading us so lovely, so beautifully in worship to the band and to Alison for that uh, story about doubt that ties in very much with what we're going to be looking at this morning. But before we do that, I just want to say what uh, a pleasure it is to be back with you here uh, in Kalinche. I, I really always look forward to, to coming here, whether it's to play music or uh, to bring the Word of God. And I find a very uh, welcome, warm welcome uh, each time I come here, and I want to thank you for that. So, uh, thank you for this opportunity to come and share with you again. We're going to pray just for a short moment, and then we'll look at the Word of God. Father, thank you so much for the children who were here just a few moments ago. We commit them to you and pray that your word would enter their hearts and transform them and change them from an early age so that they will, uh, from uh, the uh, young age they're at, begin to follow Jesus and love him. And Father, we pray that you would bless all of us now to listen to your word. We've uh, sung a, a prayer asking that you would speak to us and we believe that you do speak to us. You have given us your word, the uh, written testament of all that you have uh, given for us to know, to learn, uh, in order that we might receive the salvation that you've prepared for us in Christ. And so we pray that you give us your help today to speak and to listen and to discern your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. My mother was given a nickname by her father when she was a young girl. Although her name is Selma, he called her Contradicting Kate. And she was Contradicting Kate because uh, apparently, no matter what anybody said, she thought she knew better or she thought it was wrong and she would pipe up and say, no, that's not right. This is the way it is. Mum is now well into her 80s and I think she hasn't changed much because she still enjoys contradicting people and what they say. There's one Bible character who's best known by the nickname that was given to him. And I'm talking, of course, about doubting Thomas, one of the disciples. Because of what we read in John chapter 20, we use his nickname to describe a person who refuses to believe anything until they're shown proof. Now, the Bible doesn't say a lot about Thomas. We're told he had a twin brother or sister. That's what the little name Didymus means that is featured in John chapter 20. He was a twin. But we don't know where he came from, and we don't know what he did before becoming a disciple of Jesus. There are, however, again in the Gospel of John, two events besides the doubting incident that reveal something about Thomas's character. We're going to examine those two instances before going on to look at the doubting passage. In John chapter 11, Jesus' friend Lazarus has died in Bethany. Bethany is a suburb of Jerusalem, so it's just outside the holy city itself. And Jesus decides that he's going to go up and visit the sisters of Lazarus, even though he's aware the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem are out to get him. 
If he goes anywhere near the city, he's likely to be seized and killed. So the disciples warn Jesus not to go. But at that point, Thomas says to them, let us also go that we may die with him. He's not telling Jesus not to go. He's saying, we'll go up and let's be ready to die along with him. It's a brief statement, and yet it reveals enormous courage from Thomas. Yes, the Jewish leaders would want to seize and kill Jesus if he went back to Jerusalem. Still, Thomas has the attitude, if they kill him, they'll have to kill me. It takes a real man to say that. Here is love, here is loyalty, here is total commitment, no half measures with Thomas. It's all or nothing for Jesus. That's one of the instances that we find him in John chapter 11. The next time he appears, it's in the upper room in Jerusalem on the eve of Christ's crucifixion. All the disciples are there, minus Judas, who has gone to betray his Lord. And they're all sitting around the Lord's feet, knowing that the end is not far away. Jesus begins to teach them. He says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Now, Thomas has been listening intently to what Jesus is saying. And all this talk about coming and going really disturbs and confuses him. So in a moment of frankness, Thomas blurts out, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? These are the words of a totally honest man. The rest of the disciples are probably just as confused and baffled by what Jesus has just taught. But Thomas is the only one who owns up to not understanding. I wonder, would you have understood what Jesus was talking about when he said those things? Thomas certainly didn't, and he pipes up and says, I don't know what you're talking about. We all know people like that, don't we? People who, if they don't understand something, speak up and won't let it go. They keep asking until the thing makes sense to them. My wife is very like that when we sit and watch a film together. No matter what happens, no matter what is said, if there's something she hasn't caught, she says, what was that? Or what's happening? And what did that man say? I can't figure out what it's all about. When that happens, I would just wish she would keep quiet and watch the film and it'll all work out in the end and you'll find out soon enough. But she keeps on asking and doesn't want to go any, for, any further on in the film, especially if we're watching a video. So we have to pause it until I try and explain what I think I, 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 it's about, which isn't always accurate either. But Thomas was a bit like that. He wants to know the truth. He doesn't want to hear what Jesus is saying without understanding it. And so he pipes up and says, 
I don't know what you mean, Lord. And that's the second indication the Bible gives us about Thomas's personality. He is someone who thinks things through. He's an independent mind, a man not easily swayed or persuaded by others' opinions. The other disciples were probably smiling benignly at Jesus and thinking in their own heads, what is this all about? But Thomas is the only one who admits that he doesn't understand. So he's not swayed by what other people think or do. He's nobody's yes man. And he wouldn't make a confession of faith unless he deeply believed it to be true. So we can see that the Bible portrays Thomas as a brave man, intensely loyal, deeply committed to Jesus, And also an honest man who acknowledges his own confusion and fears. He won't be satisfied with pat answers. If he lived today, I don't think he would be the kind of person to put some of those bumpers that you stickers on the back of their cars that you often see nowadays. There's a thing called bumper sticker theology. Have you ever heard of it? It's more common in the United States, but you do see it a bit over here bumper sticker theology. It's those pithy theological slogans printed on bumper stickers that Christians affix to their cars as a means of promoting Christianity. For example, you might have come across this one. Smile, Jesus loves you. Another one that is quite amusing is don't let my car fool you, my treasure is in heaven. A bit hard to make that sound authentic when you're driving a Rolls Royce. I've seen this one in Northern Ireland, and maybe you have as well. (coughs) Honk if you love Jesus. Have you ever done it? (laughs) Have you ever seen a car with that in front of you and you pumped your horn and uh, he's waved at you from in front of you? Honk if you love Jesus. I actually prefer the next one, which is a kind of (coughs) repost to that one. Honk if you love Jesus. Text while driving if you want to meet him. (laughs) I've never seen that one in a car, but if any of you ever see that one, take a picture of it, would you, and send it to me. I think it's, it's, it's quite a gem. For a while, there was a bumper sticker that blared, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Very true but rather simplistic. And simplistic slogans like that, in my opinion, don't appeal much to people who think deeply, to people who have real earnest questions, or people who are experiencing some deep crisis in their lives. People like Thomas, who now faces the greatest crisis of his life in connection with the miracle that no one at first believed. Let's go back to Resurrection Day. We're still in this whole Easter period and uh, building up to Ascension Day. If you had been in Jerusalem with Matthew, James, and John, etc., would you have believed those strange rumors about an empty tomb? Well, how did those who knew Jesus best react to the news of his resurrection? Simply put, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. They were not expecting a resurrection. Jesus had predicted he would be put to death, then raised to life, but his followers just didn't get it. Forget his predictions. 
forget all that brave talk that they had come up with, they had actually given up when Jesus died. And they had gone and hidden themselves in Jerusalem, fearful of what the authorities might come and do to them because the authorities knew they had been with Jesus. Here is what the Bible says about that first resurrection day. Now, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they rejoiced over the truth. No, they would not believe it. They would not believe it. They're mourning and weeping and refuse to accept Mary Magdalene's testimony. In the parallel uh, version of this in Gospels, Matthew, we read this. On the first day of the week, a group of women, including Mary of Magdala, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, went to the tomb with the spices they had prepared. And they were going there because they didn't believe Jesus was going to be risen from the dead. They were going to uh, put spices on the body in the tomb. After being told Jesus had risen, they returned from the tomb and told all this to the eleven and to all the others. And the other women with them also told the apostles. But this story of theirs seemed pure nonsense. And they did not believe them. Thomas wasn't the only one who had doubts. The other apostles all believed that this was utter nonsense, this story about Jesus rising from the dead. Who really expected a resurrection that Sunday morning? Certainly not the disciples. But the enemies of Jesus feared something might happen. That's why the Jewish leaders persuaded the Romans to seal the tomb. But Jesus' friends expected nothing. They all doubted, none believed, till they saw Jesus with their own eyes. As we read in John 20, in the passage that we uh, had read to us uh, so nicely by Olivia, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, He showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. That is when they believed. When they saw the Lord. Now I believe God made a special concession to the apostles. I believe that because they were going to be the founders of the church, they had to see the physical presence of Jesus. They needed to be able to be with him, to touch him, to hear him, to walk with him, because they were going to be the founders of the church, and many of them were going to lose their lives, and you wouldn't lose your life for an illusion. So they had this very special occasion, but they didn't believe, the special concession, but they didn't believe until they saw him. It so happened that Thomas was not present that evening of the Resurrection Sunday. The Bible doesn't say why he wasn't there, but I think 
I think we can conjecture, and it, it's only conjecture, but I think there might be indications from his character as to why he wasn't there. Some people respond to sorrow and tragedy by seeking solace in the company of their friends. They want a lot of people around them. They want to talk about the thing that has happened to them, and they get comfort from that. But there are other people who prefer to be alone with their thoughts. And Thomas, I believe, was one of those. This man who thought things through deeply. I believe he needed to be on his own to process all that had happened with Jesus' death. And perhaps Thomas was more deeply hurt about Jesus' death because he had been one of the most strongly of the disciples committed to Jesus in this life. Remember, he's the one who said that they should all go up with Jesus to Jerusalem and die alongside him. He was so committed to his Lord. And that love had been disappointed, and he is shattered. Jesus had died alone, and now Thomas grieves alone because his heart, so undivided in love for Jesus, has been so terribly crushed by all that has happened. But eventually he gravitates back to his brothers. He doesn't believe them when they tell him they have seen the risen Lord, just as they had not accepted the women's testimony on Resurrection Day until they had seen Jesus. But regardless of Thomas's doubts, indeed desperately wanting to believe, Thomas gathers with them the following Sunday evening, and it's them that Jesus appears to him. Now, when you think of those events you may call Thomas a doubter, but you cannot make him out an unbeliever or a skeptic. Thomas's doubts came from devotion to Christ and a desire to seek the truth. And just think of ourselves. How many of us who are followers of Jesus Christ have not doubted there is still a God in heaven when we have lost someone we have loved deeply? whether that be through death, through divorce, through some kind of breakup. How many of us have not had doubts about God and his goodness and his love in such circumstances? And how many of us followers of Jesus have not doubted when we have been disappointed that God has not answered our prayers in the way we desired? And we doubt his love and we think, is God really there or does he really care? How many of us have not had that kind of doubt? Thomas is in good company, or perhaps we are in good company with Thomas. You see, I think there are two kinds of doubters as far as spiritual truth is concerned. There are what you could call hard-boiled rationalists who say, I don't believe it, and there's nothing that will make me believe it. They enjoy their doubt, boast about it, even get angry when challenged. They're not looking for answers, they're looking for arguments. They magnify the difficulties, they focus on the objections to faith. They cannot be convinced because they will not be convinced. Their mind is closed. But there's another kind of doubter, the person who says, I'm finding it really hard to believe, but I'm open to persuasion. And I'm willing to do something to find out more about what you say in terms of faith, in terms of uh, biblical truth. And these are like Thomas. 
He did something about his doubts. He made sure that the following week, the second Sunday uh, following the resurrection, he made sure he returned to be in the company of the other disciples. He'd heard their report from the previous Sunday. He didn't accept it, but he's no unbelieving skeptic. Rather, he's a teachable, persuadable, wounded believer. Or wounded would-be believer. He had to be sure it was a risen Jesus the other disciples had seen. Not some dream, not some vision. He couldn't get rid of the suspicion that they had seen a ghost. But also he couldn't live with a second-hand faith. And Jesus didn't blame him or condemn him. In fact, eight days after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples this second time, and there Thomas was with them. Jesus speaks to him as to one whose faith is weak, almost extinguished, but still flickering somewhere. Not to a man who has some kind of evil heart, some kind of skeptic who simply refuses to believe. That's not what Thomas was like. And Jesus says to him, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. The Bible doesn't tell us if Thomas did stretch out his hand. Personally speaking, I don't think he did. I don't think he needed to. Why? Because of what happens afterwards. Because you see, Jesus knew all about Thomas's doubts. He knew the raging sea within Thomas's heart. And he came so that Thomas could be sure because Thomas was one of the apostles, one of the founders of the church who needed to see Jesus. And Jesus didn't put him down. In fact, he allowed Thomas to make the greatest testimony given by any of the apostles. And that's why when Thomas says what uh, he says, and, and I'm going to show you in a second, that's why I think he didn't have to touch Jesus. Because Thomas fell at Jesus' feet when he appears and talks to him. And Thomas exclaims this, my Lord and my God. He was the very first person to acknowledge that Jesus is divine. That Jesus is God. Now this is a Jew. This is someone who would never bend the knee to an idol or to anything else that put himself up or itself up as God. But he falls at Jesus' feet and he says, my God, my God. And that is the climax of John's gospel. John goes on to say, that's why I'm writing this gospel, that you also would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is Lord, that he is God. And that statement of Christ's divinity for the very first time comes from a man who had the strongest doubts. It's a wonderful truth that the greatest doubters often become the strongest believers. And honest doubts, once resolved, become the bedrock of an unshakable faith. It has been said that no truth is so strongly believed as that which you once doubted. 
I used to be an atheist myself, and I was proud of it. And yet, in the back of my mind, because I'd had some kind of a Sunday school upbringing, I knew something about the gospel. At the back of my mind, there was always the, 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 the thought, I wonder if it is actually true. And God did come into my life and change me from that background, but I doubted very, very much the truth until I became convinced of it myself. And in the history of the Christian church, the greatest doubters have sometimes become the strongest believers. You've maybe heard of a man called Lee Strobel, uh, who set out as an atheist to disprove everything that the Bible said about Christ and ended up a believer and becoming an apologist for the Christian faith. Google him, Lee, Lee Strobel. What about you? Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in the miracle we celebrate at Easter? If your answer is, I'm not sure, then believe me, you're welcome at the empty tomb. If you come with honest doubts and you want to leave that way, that's okay. Jesus will not force you to believe. But when you're ready, he'll be waiting there for you. But Jesus is coming back again and you can't afford to wait too long. God only asks us to be consistent with ourselves. He asks us to give this story about the resurrection of Christ the same treatment we give to any other story we hear in the news. And friends, when you look at the news nowadays, when you see the confusing reports, when you can see the images that are flashed on our screens in news reports, and we remember that any of these things can be twisted and changed by technology, you actually wonder, who can I believe? God asks us to give the same kind of treatment to the story about Jesus as we give to any other story we hear in the news. Sift the evidence. Judge the record and come to a conclusion. Don't let your doubts keep you away. Come to the empty tomb and see for yourself. And that's why the story of Thomas is in the Bible. So that honest doubters might be encouraged to bring their honest doubts to the empty tomb just like Thomas did, and his doubts were resolved by the person of Jesus Christ alive from the dead. And as Jesus said, blessed are those who believe without seeing because the apostles founded the church and the church has propagated the truth and we today are recipients of that truth handed down through their testimony. Jesus is just as alive and real and as physical today as he was when he appeared on Resurrection Day to the disciples. I want to finish uh, with a story about my family again. I mentioned contradicting Kate uh, at the start with my mother. And by the way, if ever you come across my mother and my wife, don't tell them anything I said today about uh, my dad, my dad was a, 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 a plater in the shipyard in Belfast, very proud of his uh, working class background, a very well-read man. He would have loved to have gone into further study if it had been possible, but that was not uh, available to him because of financial constraints. So he became a plater in the shipyard, and he was always very proud of his upbringing in East Belfast, a man who thought things through very, very carefully, a man of, of justice, 
a, a man of respect, but by no means a believer in Jesus Christ. My mother and father never went near the doors of a church, although they did send my sister and me to Sunday school in East Belfast. But he thought things through very, very deeply, never gave you a quick answer to anything, always hesitated before speaking. And sometimes when my sister and I were naughty, we would just wish he would hit us, smack us, instead of sitting us down and giving us a lecture after a while. <clears throat> when I became a Christian in university, and my parents at that time, well, particularly my mother, thought I'd become involved with some kind of a cult, it was actually a Baptist church, <laughs> began to speak to them about Jesus and what he now meant to me. And as I spoke to my parents about it and they listened, they became interested. And after a while, I was persuaded my father was going to come to faith because he seemed to have grasped the truths of Scripture about Jesus. But to my surprise, many, many months later, it was my mother who gave her life to Christ. First of all, and she was the one that I felt didn't quite understand uh, things as well as dad did. She actually became a Christian the night before my final exams. And so when I did my final exams at university, I couldn't have cared less what I wrote in the paper. My mother was now in the kingdom of God, and that was the most precious thing. Dad began to accompany her to church, and funny enough, they went to the same church that I had been sent to uh, as a child in Sunday school. And he went with her because she couldn't drive and she needed a lift, and so he sat in the services with her. And about three months after mum came to faith in Christ, my dad gave his life to Jesus. Now I was quite surprised about all this because, as I mentioned, I thought he was going to be the one who would come first. He seemed to grasp things more clearly. And I asked him, Dad, why did it take you so long? I really thought you were going to be the first one to believe. And Dad said to me, I didn't want people to think that I believed in Jesus simply because your mum did. I couldn't have a second-hand faith. I had to be persuaded myself. And for me, that is Thomas. An open mind, a desire to know the truth, and finally coming to faith in the risen Christ. Dad, a man like Thomas, and there are maybe many Thomases among us here today. And Jesus welcomes us and allows us access to him, open-armed, and say, bring your doubts to me. And as I said in the book of Isaiah, God says, come and let us reason together. Let's talk these things through. Thank God for the story of Thomas in our Bibles.